UX Podcast Episode 135. Hi, and welcome to UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Pat Axbom. And today we're bringing you two interviews from UXLX. Uh, The first one will be with uh, Stephanie Rieger. She's a seasoned product design professional working at the intersection of mobile web and Internet of Things is what her LinkedIn profile says. She did a talk about, uh, well, mobile technology in the third world, uh, in essence. Uh, You'll hear more about that. And then we have Sofia Wojciechowski. Uh, with a background in industrial design, now a UX designer running her own business, and a front figure for the concept of object-oriented design, which we will learn more about as well. There are two unrelated topics, but both of them are are incredibly fascinating. And I think, well, me and you got quite excited in different ways about these two talks. So let's listen um, to Stephanie. Uh, We've brought Stephanie Rieger into the room. Welcome to the show. Hello, Stephanie. Thanks very much. <laughs> uh, you did a talk yesterday uh, uh, on, during the Speaker's Day uh, about the emerging global web, and you did a workshop today called Exploring the Physical Web. And your talk yesterday really spoke to me because I've grown up actually in, in Tanzania, in Saudi Arabia, in Liberia, and I know that those countries have changed so much since I left them, but just the way they have changed is just mind-blowing. Because they now have access to the internet, they now have access to mobile phones, and they're doing some great stuff with it. And you told us all about it, and all the different banking. You, you mentioned like there are 261 different mobile banking systems around the world right now, and it's just so hard to fathom uh, when you're working in the Western world and you have these five social media networks that everybody talks about, and you ha- everybody already has their bank, so that there's no challenge there really. So. Tell us a bit more about how you got into researching all that and, and finding out about it and what what was the driving force. Um, right. Um, I, how we got into it. Yeah. I, I, years ago, um, 2003, we packed everything up and moved to Indonesia. Um, I was teaching English there for a period of time. And um, we had already traveled a little bit in the region. And, I, you know, my both my husband and I are naturally we're, d- we're designers we look at how people use things mm, and yeah. from the very beginning we noticed that mobile was being used differently there and that was already quite some time ago these were old nokia devices these were feature phones very early smartphones but already there the the changes were quite palpable between um other parts of the world more more emerging parts of the world and and um the, the western more developed world as it were and and a lot of it was simply that the conditions were different and mm. so things developed in different mm. ways that you know it sounds really obvious but it, it is very very, very true. And so, for, you know, for example, in North America at the time, we had big monopolies of mobile phone carriers. Mm. Everyone had these big contracts. Uh, yeah. No one knew what a SIM card was because they were hardwired into the devices. Mm. And then meanwhile, in Asia, you already had a very different ecosystem. Not every country, but a lot of them were people They had big mo- phone marketplaces. People would go, they would swap out handphone parts. They would buy multiple SIM cards. They would buy SIM cards with special lucky numbers. Yeah. They would have all these apps to help mediate already use of data, what little data there was back then and so the behaviors were already very different and um, 
and we, you know, we stayed in Asia for a period of time back then, and then we ended up moving back to North America and eventually moved to Europe. But we've always gone back to Asia, and it's something that we do on a regular basis to see how things are evolving, how they're changing, and um, and so that's one of the things that we research on a regular basis. So um, what? So because we we live in such a uh, my impression anyway, and some of the conversation we've had with UX is we we do live in such a isolated Western world dominated. Um, UX bubble, mm-hmm. and we we know that it's different in Asia and it's different out there, but I think we have we have very little real understanding about how different it is. Tell us a little bit about some of those mm. differences you're finding now. Um, a, a lot of those differences are very much down to mobile specifically. Mm. Um, mobile is the uh, often the primary access point to the internet for a lot of people in uh, in emerging economies, purely d- down to price, mm. uh, but also from a practicality point of view, people's lives are, are very different. They don't have the big you know suburban home with regular power supply and lots of rooms and you know places that you can put a laptop and so on. So people y- fighting to, to install fiber to your house yeah, yeah, out no, in the kind of middle of exactly. Yeah. So you know having a mobile phone just makes sense, uh, you know, and especially mobile phones that are aimed at um, other markets than ours. A lot of time they have a very long battery life. Mm. They're designed for more rugged use. Mm. And certainly they used to be anyways. It's become a little bit less so. Um, and um, so that is what most people use right off the bat. And often it's what they use almost exclusively, barring maybe internet cafes and so on. Mm. So um, everything develops around that. Um, all, all the services have to be tailored towards uh, not just small screen use, but then also what is a small screen good at. Mm. So you have um, widespread use of so- social networking, for example, and messaging, um, even more so than um, than in developed economies. Um, and part of it is because you know, as soon as you get a phone, you probably have a social networking app on it. And if you don't, you seek it out the minute you get your phone. And it's a way that you communicate with your family, your friends. There's a lot of uh, people around the world whose families are living abroad. There's you know large diasporas of people working in other countries who don't see their families often, or family people are spread out. The distances yeah. mm. geographically are complicated to navigate and so there's even more incentive to use technology to have conversations with people to keep up with them to send them photos and all this and all of this just kind of mushrooms into once the phone is the the nexus of everything that you do um, then new services emerge that we might not necessarily find um, quite as important here Uh, things like banking as you mentioned Mm. we we all have a bank account most of us we've Mm. maybe had it since we were a child we don't really think of you know an alternate way to bank it becomes a new way that we have to learn that maybe it's not as good as the old one or maybe we feel it's more complicated whereas um, in emerging markets a lot of people are um, considered unbanked and um, the phone sometimes is their first entry point also into personal finance of mm. some sort being able to pay for things and sometimes save money and um, and keep money in a, in a virtual bank as it sometimes is or, or use a virtual currency you know either offered by someone like a social network mm. or a large provider like Alibaba for example uh, and it's that becomes what you do and so again all these services grow up around that idea um, so it ends up being in some ways dramatically different while at the same time being very similar because people have the same needs mm. but uh, they just experience them in different ways mm. yeah that was funny people don't go into uh, stores to buy mobile phones they go in to buy Facebook <laughs> I laughed when you said that uh, and then people start start businesses on Instagram and, that, and so people you, you have all these small businesses starting up because Instagram allows them to market themselves in a new way. Yeah. I, it, it's, you know, it, it, it kind of is that simple. It's kind of a means yeah. to an end. What yeah. do you have around you that yeah. can allow you to to, to make mm. some extra money, mm. to do what you ever you need to do? And, and also part of it is that um, a lot of people are informally employed. They mm. don't 
they don't have an office that they go to right. every day with a steady salary. Mm. They have their own little business. Sometimes they have mm. multiple businesses. They might do something from their home and then mm. spend some time in the evenings doing somewhere something somewhere else. They might sell fruit on the street. There's all sorts of things people do, yeah. but they're a lot more, maybe a little bit more haphazard, less structured. And so, um, you know, any tool that can help them do their business uh, in a different way. Um, and one example, actually, I had a while ago in a presentation was that when we were in Asia in 2003, we um, in our neighborhood we lived in, in in Surabaya, there were uh, food sellers who would come down the street and they would ring different bells. And so the soup man would have a certain bell and then oh, the noodle yeah. man would have yeah. another bell. And so you could hear them coming from the house and then you huh. would come out and you would bring a bowl and they would fill it with soup. And, mm. you know, that's how you had lunch sometimes. Mm. And all these types of people are still there, except they've progressively started using technology to do some of this. So, you know, 10 years after that, it was SMS mm. and they would text people nearby and they would say, you know, we know you come on Tuesdays often to have soup. Are you home? Would you like yes. some soup? Yeah. And, you know, and so now it's social messaging and um, and each layer of technology has actually enabled a lot more, right? Mm. With messaging, you can message 20 people at the same time. You couldn't yeah. do that with SMS. It was mm. more costly. Mm. So it's, it's not that the technology is all fancy and new. It's just that it's really, really useful. And mm. that's why also people find kind of unconventional uses for it. Yeah, because what I took from your talk was that you know, everything is a platform. Everything yeah. gets used as a platform. And, and then the, the individuals build ecosystems across the mm -hmm. platforms. I think you give the example of of, yeah, of Instagram. Yeah. Uh, was it selling sheep on Instagram it or goats? <laughs> exactly. Or like and 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 then that the the conversation then would quickly move mm -hmm. to um, a messaging platform that they felt comfortable and familiar with. Yeah. And the transactions would would play out in in that world. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So you just you chain on services and um, any and and all of these are mobile, right? Almost mm. universally, mm. they end up being mobile, um, and. Um, and it just an, it's kind of an easy way. And it also doesn't probably hurt that in a lot of these countries, people are using Android as Android, as it happens, as a platform where it's particularly easy to jump from yes. one operating or one um, application to the next and then kind mm. of round trip and so on, mm. which um, indirectly has probably influenced it as well. Because you, you don't think of app silos quite as mm. much in Android. You just think of this continuum mm. of activities mm. that you perform on your device. Yeah. Um, and from a, com from a company point of view as well, then, then you're not you don't have that uh, incentive to, to create an app silo, like you mm -hmm. said, and create your own app and your own storefront in your own system. You, you, you need to be where people uh, are utilizing the existing platforms. Uh, generally, yeah. I mean, mm. certainly the the uh, the messaging companies are, I think they're still a little bit trying to create their, their own silos as being <laughs> the platform itself. But within that platform, people have such a continuum of activities and brands mm. and, and users and everyone just kind of weaves in and out. Um, and so those are, a quote I heard a while ago in regards to WeChat in particular that, you know, their 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 mindset when they build the product, whereas Facebook built the product to be a, a social networking service where you enjoy conversations mm. with family and friends. WeChat from very early on, what they wanted to do was make kind of a platform where you could live your life. Right. Mm. And the social messaging was kind of secondary to it, right? right. And so that mm. in some ways, if that if that turns out that that was true, it, it seems very much to have been because all the design decisions, all the platform decisions, the APIs, they're leading towards giving you an environment where you can do many things. Mm. Social messaging just happens to be one of those. And mm. it is kind of the glue that ties these things together, but it doesn't feel like a social platform that you tacked other things onto. It feels like almost like an operating system right. that right. happens and you can to accept payments there and exactly. everything. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that makes a huge yeah. difference yeah. because all the Western services right now are trying to bolt on payments and other things. Yeah. And it yeah. is admittedly feeling a bit haphazard yes. because it probably is because mm. you have a product that was built for mm. something else. Mm. Yeah. 
I think that you've talked well about the, the emergence of marketplaces. Yes. Um, and and that, that makes more sense when you think about it, of this, this overall journey of, of mobile first and, and, um, and connecting et- ecosystems. And, yeah. and you've been there already. Mm-hmm. So, so why would you go off then and try and hunt down new places? Because they should be already there. Yeah. So the incentive then becomes for the organizations to be there. Like you said Apple, didn't they have? Uh, yeah, Apple has a storefront on Alibaba, which is right. one of the large mm. Chinese marketplaces, and specifically on Tmall, which is mm. where all the all the large brands hang out mm. on Tmall, which is a subset. And and yeah, I mean it it, it just makes sense because mm. China is so vast, the audience mm. is is gigantic. It's been the lar- mm. one of the largest in the world, and y- you can't open a shop everywhere. It just doesn't make sense. Even Apple yeah. will probably yeah. not uh, want to do that, right? Yeah. So it's a fantastic example that if Apple have said we need to have a, a, yeah. a storefront mm. in that place uh, I mean yeah then that's kind of a, a, st- a seal of approval <laughs> of kind of this is how it works there yeah. and um, we have to obey mm. it yeah. yeah so one final question sure. for me uh, do UX designers need to pay attention to what's happening what, what can we learn from it um, I think most definitely for probably for two reasons probably um, because no matter what product you have um, you probably do have an audience either in some of these countries or in your own But people um, who are coming from these countries, who have family and friends there, uh, or uh, you know, diaspora people who have emigrated, um, th- there are multiple audiences even within um, within countries in in, um, in Europe and North America. Mm-hmm. For example, in North America, the, the Hispanic uh, audience often behaves very differently in terms of how they use mobile yeah. than um, than some of the other cultural groups. And a lot of it is because all of their family mm-hmm. is actually in these other countries, right. so they'll use different chat applications right. and so on because they're actually communicating with family There's and friends. And yeah. exactly. So uh, even if you don't feel that you're in these markets, you probably in some ways kind of are. Yeah. And then secondary to that, I think it's a really always a really good reality check to consider that no matter what you feel about your audience, it's probably still more diverse than you think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what you often find with some of these other audiences is that they'll have really interesting behaviors um, that maybe you're not seeing yet Um in in more western audiences but because a lot of these behaviors are led through mobile as more and more people use mobile in the west and as it becomes i mean you know the use of mobile in the west is still rising and rising yeah. and rising yeah. and the percentage of shopping on mobile everything is just keeps going yeah. up and it may r- get to a point fairly shortly where if mobile becomes dominant some of those behaviors that started in in the yeah. east and yeah. africa and so on will loop back around simply yeah. because of that platform being more dominant mm-hmm. so it's it's worth understanding them ahead of time yeah. and they may not always be identical but you mm. you can understand quite a bit from them from looking at how they develop yeah. Yeah. the internet is one big leaky bucket <laughs> it is very much yeah mm. it's the leaks oh. that make it interesting exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. wonderful fantastic thank you thank Stephanie you very much you're, you're very welcome yeah. it was you're great very fun. welcome we're sitting down now with Sofia Wojciechowski Perfect. Oh, this is why Nailed I let him, it. That's why I let him do this because I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you did a full day workshop. Uh, it's that new day in UXLX where we have full day workshops. Uh, yes. Melissa Perry did one. You did the other. And your topic was object-oriented UX. Yep. And I did a half day the next day. Oh, oh you, you did a half did, day as well. Yeah. Yep, yep. Oh, that must have been a real challenge. Oh, that's uh-huh. fascinating because that back means you did back. the, was it six hours and then three hours? Yeah. yeah. It's uh it's scalable. You can kind of I can I've I've done it lots of different ways. I've done it in 45 minutes mm. too. So oh wow. Well, <laughs> yeah. In our experience the speakers have a really hard time bringing their workshops down to three hours actually. Yeah, you know, mm. it's um it's good to kind of like have ways to make it even more succinct and then mm. when you're pulling slides out like oh this is going to be the the three hour workshop I have to make the presentation shorter. Yeah. 
then it, you kind of question yourself, and maybe I should have taken those slides out of the longer one too, if they weren't if they weren't as uh, as directly relevant. So, but yeah, um, so I am I am pretty spent now. At the end <laughs> of the imagine. week, yeah, it's yeah. a lot of work. But tell us, wh- tell what us. is object oriented UX? Um, the kind of nutshell way that I describe it, because. Um, you know, I, I do spend the, the workshop, the first part of the talk, the first part of the workshop is about a 90 minute talk. There's a lot of like learning up to it. But um, the elevator pitch um, that I that I usually give is it's very similar to object oriented programming and the, the benefits are very similar. Mm-hmm. And the, um, the uh, I, I guess the theoretical part of it is very similar. So in the late 80s, early 90s, the programming industry kind of went through a revolution from procedural languages being the norm to object-oriented languages being the norm. And um, the benefits being, so did either of you I, I actually, uh, Yeah, I actually learned um, object-oriented um, programming um, in the mid-90s. Okay. Uh, Mid-90s. And it was it was revolutionary. It, the feeling as a programmer <laughs> yeah. was fantastic. To go from procedures mm. to then move to these kind of contained units right. that you you focused on the solidity of the object that <laughs> you, you you basically you can you had in you know ways in and then the things came out yeah. and right. it was just so solid that f- everything worked so much better with these objects. And what and so this is often how I how I start the workshop is I ask the people in the audience, okay, who went from procedural to mm. um to an object oriented language and I mm. make the joke like you're gonna show your age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yes. um, And James just did. I just did. You yeah. just <laughs> did. fell into that bird trap. <laughs> <laughs> Kinda tricked you into that one. Um, but the advantages of doing object-oriented UX are very similar. So um, I ask, like, what, what are the, what are some reasons why it felt so good? And you just mentioned some. A lot of the ones that I hear is encapsulation, yeah, that's right. um, encapsulation. being able to reuse mm. parts, mm. Um, having better consistency in your code, more mm. maintainability. Yeah. Um, if you need to go in and change something or fix something or update it, it's a lot easier. Mm. And also working in teams is easier. Mm. So if you're working in procedural code, it's kind of hard to work with a bunch of people. But when you're Working with object-oriented code, you can say, okay, you're working on this object, you're working yeah. on this object, and now let's sit down and figure out the relationship between these objects and how they talk to each other. Yeah. And how they should talk to each other. Yeah. And maybe not be as scared that the whole world's going to collapse if you alter that bit there. Exactly. You have less of this kind of like spider web, I'm mm. going to move something over here and then everything else is going to break. Mm. Um, the same, the benefits are the same for doing object-oriented UX. So I like to say that object-oriented UX is the... I think very overdue revolution um, that parallels the revolution that developers and programmers had. So one of the one of the good reasons to do this. It's all the reasons um, that it's good to develop in object-oriented languages, and there are reasons to develop in procedural languages. But um, the by and large great advantages um, apply to object-oriented UX design. And then another extra bonus is that it helps communicate with your developers mm-hmm. <laughs> because oh, yeah. Yeah. using yeah. the same terminology. Yeah, yeah you're, like you're creating a yeah. shared language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and what I truly believe is happening, this is the insanity mm-hmm. that I think is happening. I believe, and from my, um, my small crude forays into research um, on this, is that users are building their mental models with objects. Mm-hmm. and not necessarily actions and flows and procedures. Mm-hmm. We build our mental models coming up with concrete objects and the relationships between those concrete objects. Mm-hmm. And then we think about the things that we do to objects. 
Yeah, but that's the physical world, isn't it? It's the physical world, yeah. right? What, what would be an example of an object then? An object. Mm -hmm. um, so let's think about um, Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So I use Kickstarter as an example a lot. So Kickstarter, they have projects, and they have people. Mm -hmm. Those are their main two objects. And then they have things like donations. Um, something on, like, let's take a, I'm working in educational technology right now. I'm building an app for teachers. Mm -hmm. And so the objects for an app for teachers, what are the things in a teacher's problem domain? She has students. She has classes. She has lessons. She has assignments. These are all things that exist in her real world. Mm -hmm. And so we want to create digital representations of her real world that aligns to her mental model. So the, the insanity that I think is happening is that a, a teacher, a user, is, she has her kind of thought bubble, and it's all constructed of real-world objects mm -hmm. that she's dealing with in her problem domain in the real world. And then user experience designers come along, and we create flows, and we create actions, and we focus on things like the modifiers. We say it's got to be easy to use, and it's mm -hmm. got to be trustworthy, and it's mm -hmm. got um, you know, to feel modern. And then we think about all the actions. She's, you know, she's got to be able to create classes. She's got to be able to manage her lessons. She's got, and we create you know, user stories and task flows and all these very kind of procedural based, um, based mechanisms to drive our design. And we don't have a specific part in our process to define what the objects are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she's got a mental model and objects. We come in and build procedural based artifacts and then Programmers come along and they reverse engineer our mm. procedural-based wireframes to go back to an object-based model, <laughs> and so yeah. I think we're creating a huge disconnect yeah. in the middle. So it's kind of it's kind of almost like um, bringing in a, a, um, a categorization or like an information architecture in an early stage of grouping them into these objects. Or mm. yeah, I mean it's um, it very much aligns with. Um, a lot of what is being done in content modeling. Mm. So mm. a lot of what um, I'm going to, I really should learn how to pronounce her name because my name is so hard <laughs> to pronounce. But Sarah WB, um, Sarah Watcher, you know who I'm talking about, right? She wrote the great book, Content Everywhere, which I mm. recommend to everybody. She's a content strategist. Yeah. Right. And Mike Atherton, he's an information architect who yes. worked on the BBC, right? Yeah. And so he talked about domain modeling mm. and content modeling. and. I come at it from a product uh, perspective. My background is in industrial design. Yeah. So it's exactly that, but thinking about it coming from more of this, um, this angle of product design where I think about that more as objects. So it's a little bit of semantics, mm. but this, is, this kind of thing is being done a lot in the content strategy and information architecture yeah. space. Mm. I want it to be done more in that space, but one thing that I that I say is like, you know, I, I recently consulted a little bit for a company that builds software for used car dealers. Mm. And so their main user type is uh, is used car dealership, uh, used car dealers. That's their main uh, user. And does a used car dealer, uh, used car salesman, does he think about a vehicle as content? Yeah. No, he thinks about it, he thinks about it as a thing in his parking lot, right? Yeah. It's an object in yeah. his real world. Yeah. He's not thinking about the dealerships and the locations yeah. and the customers. Those are not content because he's working in a you know in, in an application that he's in all day. Mm. And a um, teacher, she doesn't think about her students as content. So if you're working on 
you know, I, I used to work at CNN.com. So there, you think about an article as content, sure. And a user thinks about an article mm-hmm. as content. Mm-hmm. So the content strategy alignment made a lot more sense. But for people working on products, mm. they might say, oh, content modeling isn't for me. Mm. Interesting. How would that reflect on your everyday work as a UXer? I mean, how do you block your time? Do you, like, now I'm going to work on this object mm-hmm. or this team? Or, or do you even separate into different teams on different objects? Um, yeah, both. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so what I the, the caveat that mm-hmm. I always throw mm-hmm. out is this is not anything that's replacing anything you already yeah. do. Yeah. We still need to do interaction design. We still need to do all the research. Right. We still need to do all the um, all the discovery work. Um, but, but it seems to really help the structure, though. Of course, it creates yeah. like this kind of like common mm-hmm. core mm-hmm. of the of the entire project because yeah. you do that research, you do the discovery, and you pull you come up with goals. And the first part of the process is usually getting really well-articulated product goals and then looking at the nouns. And also when you're doing user interviews, what are the nouns you're hearing over and over again? So mm. when I did 30, 40 hours of teacher interviews, mm. what did I hear? I heard I have to you know, manage the students that are in my classes, students in classes, students in classes. Mm. I need to assign lessons. Uh, they need to align to standards, 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 standards. So mm. you start hearing these things over and over mm. again and the objects start bubbling up to the surface. Mm. And so then you take those objects and, and, and then what I do is fairly early in the process, start thinking about what makes up each mm. of those objects. So what are the elements that make them up? And then what are the relationships? And right. building a relational diagram saying mm. like, okay, there's students are inside of classes, but... Uh, yeah, I was just going to ask mm-hmm. about that. Do you, yeah, do you have um, instances of the classes, mm-hmm. and then do you kind of wrap um, instances in other objects? So, like um, um, a teacher mm-hmm. is uh, does a teacher then include several instances of students and several instances of classes? Yeah. So sometimes there's. Um, so when I say the word instance, yeah. I usually am talking about. Um, real stuff applied. So an instance of a teacher might be Mrs. Smith. Right. Okay. And an instance of a student might be little Jenny or, you know, an instance of a lesson would be ratios 101. Okay. (laughs) So what I like to, when I think about instances, I think about instances being the stress testers. Mm -hmm. But um, when you hear about doing a content audit Mm -hmm. or something like that, like let's say you're brought on to redesign Mm amazon.com. Are you going to do a content audit of all the products in amazon.com? No, 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 no. You're not going to look at those millions of products, (laughs) I guess. Or even if you're doing a content audit for CNN.com, are you going to look at all the articles Mm. on CNN? No, you're going to think you're going to get a few Mm. to kind of stress test your cookie cutter, if you will. So the metaphor I use is the instances are the cookies and the um, the, what we're really concerned with is designing a cookie cutter that's going to work with all our cookies. Um, but I think you're also talking about one-to-many relationships mm. between the objects, mm. which is, I think, something different. So there's the instances of the objects, which might be like M- Mrs. Smith's math class. Mm. That might be one object, and Mrs. Smith is an mm. object. But then there's the one-to-many relationships, and then there's are there any hierarchies within the relationship mm, yeah. within the objects? Um, for the most part. I've found that our systems are going more and more to hierarchies mm-hmm. where there is very sometimes you have parent child relationships but often it depends on the context. So yeah. if you have an article and an author, mm. well if you're on the article page, the author is a child. Mm. If you're looking at the author page, 
Now the articles are the children of the author, so it kind of depends on which oh, angle fantastic. you're looking at it from. It's yeah. a great way of looking at information architecture. So now you've done uh, your workshop in uh, six hours, three hours, and ten Four minutes. <laughs> Forty-five <laughs> and ten. Yeah, well done. So yeah. excellent. <laughs> Is there anywhere um, listeners could go to to find out? Some yeah, more I want to know this? more now. Okay, <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad your appetite has been whetted. Hmm. Um, so I have two articles now on a list apart. Um, uh, if you Google object-oriented UX, they will float right to the top. Mm -hmm. I'll add them to the show notes. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, so definitely. If you go on a list apart, you'll see them. They were relatively recent. Um, so definitely read the one from, I think it was October. So just the one that's object-oriented UX. That's mm -hmm. kind of the primer, the manifesto. Mm -hmm. And then there's one, um, another article that's all about um, d designing your interactions that are rooted in your objects. So doing that object model first oh, and considering right, that mm -hmm. all interaction design is, is users creating, manipulating, moving, or finding objects. Mm -hmm. So making sure that all your interaction design is strongly rooted in your object model. So that would be the this, this second article, and it's a, it's yeah. a very kind of dense article. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> pour yourself a glass of wine right. <laughs> to read that <laughs> Sit one. Down and get on with it. Um, so that's out there. Um, there's some slides on SlideShare, but if you Google, uh, object-oriented UX, those things will float right to the top. Fantastic. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Thank you for Thank joining, you us. For joining yeah. us. Oh, and also, can I can I throw my Twitter out there, too? Of course. Because yeah, I'm, I'm starting to create more and more content on yes. this, more articles, mm -hmm. and those will always get tweeted mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. So that's Sophia V-U-X. It's S-O-P-H-I-A-V-U-X. Yeah. And I'm mostly tweeting about object-oriented UX and only a little bit of cats. <laughs> there we go, then. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> now, we, now we know exactly what to expect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. I fell. I did fall straight into Sophia's trap at the towards the beginning of that interview about revealing my age by by excitedly talking about how I I first learned about object oriented um, programming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you really revealed your age there. <coughs> but but it was um, mm. reflecting back on that again. That I I mean I, the the whole topic of object oriented UX. I think it's really fascinating. Um, and I've I've looked a little bit of uh, Sophia's uh, writings, but I haven't properly get un got into it yet. And um, and this reminds me once again of of that time in the nineties when I learned um, I did I made the move from procedural to to um, object oriented, and it is quite a big it, it, it's quite a big investment mm -hmm. at first in in understanding and changing how you think about things to to get into it. Mm -hmm. And I, I recognise that again with this that to to move. I think Sophia herself said that she does like ninety minutes of slides in the workshop before getting into the the exercise because you've got to front load with a lot of you've got to take a leap of faith into this. Right. Um, so so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try and at some point invest a little bit more time into into reading about it. But I th I think if you you had a project you can do parallel with it then that would definitely um definitely help you and i have to admit i, w I was struggling a bit because i haven't done myself object-oriented programming uh i programmed but not really on that level uh, so listening back now what what i sort of hooked on onto was when she talked about nouns think of the nouns that people are discussing about talking about and that helped me think about the projects i'm working on now and what are the nouns for those users what are the building blocks of the world? And, and that helped me get into it. So I, I think I'm actually going to listen back to this episode a few more times because mm. uh, I, I feel that there's something there and I just need to get that aha moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I know the benefits of doing it programming, with programming. Uh, just that kind of the solidity of, of having, you know, you could tinker with the object itself um, as long as you didn't mess up the, the, the classes and methods 
that were encapsulating mm. the objects. Mm. And to, to, to do that with, with the objects in a, from a UX point of view, oh, I can see how that would be magical. <laughs> see, there's something got, there. There's yeah. something there. We've got to, we've got to dig deeper. Dig yeah. deeper. And I equally enjoyed listening back to Stephanie Rieger now, uh, because I've actually sit between that interview and today, I've actually been back to Tanzania and keeping in mind everything that Stephanie talked about, I was now relating to everything she said with uh, the mobiles people are using because they're not using smartphones, but they're using bat long battery life phones. And what, what really blew my mind, which I had not expected to see, was just riding along on the road, uh, you have these mud huts, uh, corrugated metal sheet roofs, uh, hmm. like every 50 meters, there's something that says Wakala, a sign, and M-Pesa. So hmm. you basically had a bank every 50 meters. Right, were the signs kind of declaring there was Wi-Fi there? or, or No, not Wi-Fi, but banking, like M-Pesa is, oh, actu is actually the, the banking system, or the currency. Right. There, are yeah. other, there are other currencies, M-Pesa is the most common. Uh, so that actually means you can go in there and transfer money to your relatives or pay someone for their work by mm. actually transferring from virtual currency from one phone to another phone. So they have more banks, uh, way more banks than I have access to. Uh, I actually had some banking trouble myself today uh, with, <laughs> ca with cash. So uh, I'm realizing that in many ways they are ahead of us because they skipped again that whole that whole industry, the need for, for bank accounts, because they're doing it all through their mobiles. Yeah, the middleman. Mm. I mean, I, yeah. I, I also reflected on um, the conversations mm. we had five mm. years ago with, with Jihai Park um, um, uh, at UXLX 2011. Mm. Um, and we taught, she has, she's from Korea, she has Korean parents, and she's mm. you know, Korean background. And she taught um, to us a lot about how back then, 2011, her parents used their mobile to come in and out of their Samsung-built apartment. Mm. They used their mobiles to pay for things um, at, at shops and there was like competing mobile payment systems back then in mm. Korea um, and they chatted with them they talked everything it was already um, the, the nexus of what they did to use Stephanie's phrase from the from the interview right um, so you know it becomes incredibly valuable object that little thing in your pocket or oh or yeah it's fantastic I mean it changes people's lives in, in ways you can't imagine uh, and it, it really makes you think uh, listening to Stephanie I mean about the bubble we are all in when we're working with UX we've talked about I mean the bubble even of, of Apple and uh, using like mm -hmm. iPhones uh, and not many UXers using Android phones but this is like a long step further than that this is people not having smartphones and 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 there, there are a lot of them uh, there's a high illiteracy rate so there's lots of voice services and lots of texting services where you, that you can call up and get stuff read up by voice. And it makes you think that in our projects, we should be thinking more about these limitations and what can we do without an app? What can we do with voice, with audio, with text messages? And what if people really have expensive data plans? How can we solve this problem in another way? Because we're, we're just latching on to the, the stuff that's already there. But if we're going to go global, I mean, we have to really rethink the way we work. Yeah, you're right. There's so many aspects. You know, the, like you said, the data mm -hmm. aspect, mm -hmm. um, literacy aspect. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, we've heard before about how in America that um, you know, there's this whole kind of slice of society in America that um, has the mobile phone as their only computer, their only internet-connected device, um, which um, which is fantastic. But at the same time. Um, creates a whole load of new challenges or additional challenges. Um, the links from this episode um, are available at uxpodcast.com.
Um, if you're not already a subscriber, then please go ahead and add us to your favorite podcast listening platform. Just subscribe. Yeah, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and anywhere. Just search for UX Podcast. Thank you all for taking the time to listen. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Thank you.